0: As we were worshiping through song this morning, I was thinking about God's kindness toward me, uh, especially with regards to the opportunity that I have right now to stand before you and to preach His Word. And the topic today, we're going to review where we've been over the last two months looking at Jesus in the Old Testament. Now, I was reflecting on God's kindness to me in this sense uh, many of you know this about me already, but I came to faith, saving faith, as a child through the reading of a children's Bible, and predominantly in the Old Testament Scriptures. And this week, I was unloading some of my books here in uh, in the church building, and I came across this, this Bible, this children's Bible. And uh, I, I looked through it, and it's amazing how just the pictures are just burned into my mind. But my relationship with God in the early days was really through the Old Testament. I started in Genesis as a child, and I just started reading, reading, reading. And, and the Bible is divided into colors, and so I say, oh, I just got to read the end of the pink pages. Then I get to the end of the pink pages, and say, oh, I just, I'm gonna, I think I can make it to the end of the yellow pages, and I just kept reading. And... For whatever reason, I'd get near the end of the Old Testament and I would go back to the beginning of the Old Testament and start over again. And it wasn't until I got a little bit older that I started to delve into the life of Jesus and get into uh, the New Testament. And to the best of my recollection, God saved me by an act of His grace by the Holy Spirit as I read the Old Testament pages of my children's Bible. And so God has always given me a connection with Him through the Old Testament. And I actually had to grow into my understanding of the gospel through the New Testament, you know, probably when I was in grade 6 or 7. So for me, a a sermon series like this, or even a, a sermon like this today, I just think back on my life with God in what He has done for me, the way He has revealed Himself to me, and I marvel at His amazing kindness to me. Here I was, six, seven years old, getting to know Him through the Old Testament, and now, some 35 years later, not quite, 30 years later, I have an opportunity to preach the gospel from the pages of the Old Testament. God is so merciful and kind. So with that little Personal introduction, would you please open your Bibles to Luke chapter 24? Uh, today's preaching text, and it's a little bit of a different sermon today because I'm going to be reviewing different ways in which we can read about Jesus in the Old Testament, but we're going to root it in Luke 24. And let me just introduce this passage, and then we will stand and read it together. This passage has been so important to me through my uh, decade plus years in seminary as I was focusing majoring in Old testament studies uh, it 's this passage that that helped me in, in many Difficult times when I was struggling to understand how is it exactly that getting into the the depths of the historical background and and the the biblical interpretation of these Old Testament books equips me to be a pastor in Christ's church, uh, deepens my understanding of the gospel, uh, takes me further in my relationship with Jesus Christ. And so I revisited these verses over and over and over again, and they spurred me on. Uh, to study predominantly in the Old Testament. So, would you open your Bibles to Luke chapter 24? We're going to read verses 44 through 48. Would you please stand? This is the Word of God. And in today's reading, the words of Jesus Christ on the very day that He was raised from the dead. Luke 24, verse 44. and forgiveness of sin should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things, and behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you. But stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. Let's pray. O oh Lord Jesus, how I would have loved to be in that room with you as you opened the minds of the apostles to understand The scriptures and you showed the ways in which the the law is written about you and the prophets spoke of you and the Psalms and the writings are all about you the gospel of our salvation was written before you were born now I pray for us I pray that you would help us to understand the gospel from every page of scripture from Genesis all the way to Revelation I pray that you would give us a big view of what you have done for us, that we may worship you better. God, be kind to us as you're inclined to do. Be merciful with us, which it is your pleasure to be. Pour out your grace upon us, lavish it upon us, that we might be free indeed, and then help us to live increasingly for you. I pray for us this morning, enlighten our minds, minister to our hearts, in the name of Jesus Christ, amen. Please be seated. You know what I love about this? This was was recorded by Luke about the day of Jesus' resurrection. And so he, he says to them in verse 44, look, I've already told you that all of this was supposed to take place. He's referring to his crucifixion and resurrection. Because if you read previously in, in this chapter, they can't believe it. Is, is this really Jesus? They see him, but they don't believe. They hear him, but they don't believe. They touch him, they don't believe. So he eats a fish and, and he says, this is Jesus. We saw him hanging on the cross. We saw him die. We saw him buried. Now he's right before us. And Jesus says, look, I told you. I told you that this was going to happen. And then he he goes further. It's not just that I told you. Still in verse 44, everything written about me. Everything written about me has to be fulfilled. Now remember that this is taking place on the first resurrection day. Which means that none of the New Testament has been written yet. Everything written about me. Had to be fulfilled. He's he's talking about the Old Testament scriptures. Everything written about me in the Old Testament must be fulfilled. And then he breaks it down. He says the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. Uh, That's the Tanakh. Tanakh is just uh, an acronym for the Hebrew Bible, which is our Old Testament Torah, Ta, Torah. Navim is prophets, and Ketavim is the writings. So, so the Old Testament, the Hebrew Bible, is divided into these three parts. The, the law, the prophets, and the writings. Sometimes the writings are called the Psalms. So basically, when, when Jesus says, everything written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms, what he's saying is, everything written about me in your Bible. Everything written about me in, in the Hebrew Bible. For us, everything written about me in the Old Testament. It all had to be fulfilled then verse 45 oh I I get frustrated with verse 45 not because I don't love it I love it too much he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and I just oh I wish I was there I wish I had been there but the good news is uh he says look I'm going to open your minds to understand the scriptures but don't go out and do anything yet and you get down to verse 48 he says look you you're my witnesses you've seen my life you've walked with me for three years Uh, You've seen me crucified. You've seen me buried. You've seen me raised from the dead. You've had this Bible study with me where I've opened your minds to understand the Scriptures, But, but you're still not ready to do what I've called you to do. Wait. Wait for the power of God from on high. And he's talking about Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit descended from heaven and and then really brought them into a three-dimensional view of the things that Jesus had shown and taught them. And we have every advantage that the apostles had. We are indwelled by the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit is our teacher. He is our guide. He opens our minds to understand the scriptures so that even though we weren't there and it would have been great to be there, we are not missing out. In fact, we have some advantages, the New Testament. The New Testament is everything that God wanted to write about these things. So it's our responsibility, it's our joy and pleasure then to understand the gospel the way that it was intended to be understood from every page of Scripture, to have a big view of the gospel, to have a a, a big view of who Jesus is. And, And I personally really deeply believe that if we're going to have a big view of Jesus, if we're going to have a big view of the gospel, we have to, of course, get into the New Testament. But more than that, get into the Old Testament. You're going to see things about Jesus in the Old Testament that the New Testament just assumes The New Testament gives us a hermeneutic for reading the Bible. What I mean by that, a hermeneutic is an interpretive strategy. This is, how do you go about interpreting the Bible? That's hermeneutics. And so what the New Testament does, the New Testament does not exhaustively comment on the gospel in the Old Testament. This is where I think some of the mistake that we can make if we it limit ourselves to say, well, we're only going to look into the things of Christ in the Old Testament if it's explicit in the New Testament. Well, the problem is, look how long the Old Testament is, and look how short the New Testament is. If, the, if God had intended to give commentary on everything about Jesus in the gospel that's written about him in the Old Testament, then the New Testament would have been much longer than the Old Testament. So then the New Testament is not giving us the exhaustive interpretation of the Old Testament. The New Testament is giving us uh, direction, strategies for how we are to understand our Bibles from Genesis to Malachi. And that's what we've been doing for the last two months. And we haven't done an exhaustive job here. I've given you seven so far, and we're going to limit it there. We could keep going. I have, for example, three or four more right now, but we're going to limit it there. I think let's practice these seven, and what I would want to encourage you over the summer months, just start reading the Old Testament and think to yourself, which one of the seven ways of seeing Jesus in the gospel might I bring to bear on this text? How might I understand this text through a gospel lens? And we've given you the tools to do that. So, so, this sermon series has been more about giving you tools for reading the Bible, sort of the how-to, than just really getting into all of the content of the Old Testament. And one way to say it is, we've been teaching you how to fish. We haven't just been giving you fish. So, so then take that fishing rod, take those nets, and get into the ocean. Get, get into the sea open up your Bible and read it and, and enjoy it and have a big view of what God has pre- preserved for us in His Holy Scriptures. I want to also point to you, just before we review these seven ways that we've looked at, some really helpful books. And I have, I don't know, maybe 10 or 12 books that I could recommend, but these would be the three books I, I think are accessible and maybe the most helpful. So the first one that I want to commend to you is Sidney Gradanis, Preaching Christ from the Old Testament. And he has a whole series, Preaching Christ from Genesis, Preaching Christ from Ecclesiastes, Preaching Christ from Daniel, there may be a few others, but but he's really given himself to, to helping people like me, and I think people like you, to understand how you can see Jesus in the Old Testament. He's been a massive influence in, in my life, and so it is a bit more academic than the other books, but there's... There's some really good stuff there, and so I'd recommend that book to you. The second one is Graham Goldsworthy, Preaching the Whole Bible as Christian Scripture. So these are preaching books, but they don't need to be preaching books. You could rename them uh, Interpreting the Whole Bible as Christian Scripture or Interpreting Christ from the Old Testament or Seeing Christ in the Old Testament. It just happens that the target audience of the book is preachers, but it's for you as well. And then the third would be Brian Chapel, Christ-Centered Preaching. So these are some of the resources that I would commend to you. So with that as our our foundation, our introduction, let's take a look at the seven ways in which we have learned that we might get into the Old Testament and see Jesus. The first one, if you remember back, this is going back eight weeks now, uh, is type scene. Type scene. The type is because we're going to see what a typology. It's a kind of typology, but it's more more plot-based typology. We're going to talk about typology second. But a type scene is just a series of plot points that intentionally repeat. So if you've ever decided, and don't show your hands, but have you ever decided to try and start reading the Bible in Genesis and read your way all the way through the Bible? If you ever have done that or if you're ever going to do that, I highly recommend it. Uh, what One thing that I would want you to try to do is pay attention to patterns in the plot and, and as you start going, you don't have to get very far before you start to say, hey, this story sounds a lot like another story that I've read. And there's all kinds of them in the Bible. And, and God loves a good pattern. And so something happens in history, then you get a little bit further, the same thing happens, or something very similar. You go a little bit further, the same thing happens over and over again. Um, so we looked at uh, the woman at the well. You there's several occasions where a man goes to a well, he's far from home, he sits down, women come out to the well, somebody draws water, the woman goes back home, tells everybody, there's a stranger at the well, he's invited for supper, he happens to get engaged at supper, that's moving pretty quick, but it happened many times in the Bible. Then they consummate their marriage, and that happens uh, one, two, three, four, five times. So, okay, what's, what's with that story Or in the book of Judges, you have that pattern, right, of all of these judges. Uh, Israel's at peace, they're worshiping God, then they fall away and they sin against God. So God raises up the Philistines or the Moabites or somebody else to oppress them. They realize that they've sinned, they cry out to God in repentance, God raises up a judge, God saves them, and then they're at peace again and they're worshiping God the way they ought to be. That happens. Over and over again. So just look for these patterns. And what you will find. And the question you want to ask is. How does this pattern find some kind of climax in the life of Jesus Christ? And, and that's the point. Uh, it's not just finding the patterns. But you want to say. How does this pattern help me to understand something about Jesus? So if you take the woman at the well for example. We notice that when you get into that type scene. At the end of it. The man is married. Now you start reading John 4. Jesus is in Samaria. He's far from home. He sits down at a well. A Samaritan woman comes out to the well. Then they have this long conversation about drawing water. And Jesus says, I have living water that I would like to draw for you. And then he reveals himself to her. He's in a marriage type scene with a Samaritan woman. That's significant. There's something more than Jesus breaking down social taboos. There's something deep and profound about the gospel in that chapter. And, and you have to understand this type scene in order to even see it. Would Jesus marry a five times married Samaritan woman who is part ethnically Jewish and part ethnically Gentile? Yes, because she's a picture of the bride of Christ, the church. And he's, Jesus didn't come to marry the righteous women, but the women who need a lot of grace, you and me. It's powerful. So you look for these type scenes, and then you have to do a little work and ask, well, how is that fulfilled in the gospel? Secondly, we looked at typology. Typology is a matter of Christian doctrine that is prefigured in the Old Testament by a person, place, or thing. So it's some matter of Christian doctrine that is prefigured in the Old Testament by a person, place, or thing. So it's similar to the type scene, except it's not a plot sequence. It's 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 a person, or it's a place, or it's a thing. So, for example, uh, blueprints. This is how we understood it. A, a blueprint is a typology. So, if in in this building, if this is the real thing, the building that we're in. If we could lay out the blueprints, that would be the the typology. And we say, oh yeah, Yeah, I can see that we're in this room and we go down the hallway. The hallway's right there and we could take a left and there's stairs up. So you can see everything in two dimensions on the blueprints. But, But if you're here, it's the real thing. And so there's three things that you need to notice about a typology in order to see how it works. One is this correspondence. You roll open the blueprints and you see, oh yeah, I'm here and if I was down there, I would be right there and this and all that. So there's some sort of sameness between the blueprint and the real thing. Then there's some kind of escalation. So the blueprints are by definition two-dimensional. But the building that we're in is three-dimensional. There's escalation. The building is greater than the blueprints. You wouldn't pay the same price for blueprints as you would for the, the constructed building. And then finally, there's a shared vision. So the building must represent the same vision of the architect as the blueprints. That the two, though there's, there's some escalation, there's a shared vision. So, so that's exactly what a typology is. So a person, who would be a person that would be a typology of Jesus Christ? Well, perhaps Melchizedek. Melchizedek was a priest and a king. So we're told that there's something about Melchizedek that will show us something about Jesus. Jesus was a priest and a king. Actually, he's the ultimate priest, the high priest, and he is the king. All of the high priests, they're they're a picture of of Jesus. There's correspondence. You know, Aaron was a high priest. Jesus is a high priest. That's that's the, the, the sameness. Now the escalation, Aaron is a man. And he died. And he had to offer sacrifices over and over and over and over again. And every year the Day of Atonement had to be repeated, repeated, repeated. Jesus is a man also. But he's God too. That's escalation. And he exercises high priesthood once and for all on the cross. So he doesn't have to continually offering sacrifices day after day, week after week, month after month, year after year. He does once and for all And he doesn't offer an animal, he offers himself. So you see that escalation. You have typology within typology. He's the high priest and he's the sacrifice. Shared vision though. All of these, the role of the high priest was to mediate God's relationship with his people. That's the same vision that Jesus, there's one God and one mediator between God and and humanity. The man, Christ Jesus. The same vision. What Jesus does, it shares a vision with what the high priesthood did. Um uh, the same thing with, with covering over sins, that, that these sacrifices were, were done uh, symbolically to show that God would deal with or cover over Israel's sin. And we know that Jesus exponentially, infinitely greater covers our sin through the blood of His cross. So that's typology, that's an example. And so as you're reading through the Old Testament, you want to look for where are these pictures of Jesus? So we looked at a person, a, a place. Jerusalem is, is a typology. J- Jerusalem, where David set up his capital, is a picture of heaven. And heaven, which in, in the Bible is called the new Jerusalem, will come down onto a, the new earth at the end of the age. And heaven is the capital city of the, the eternal state. So so that kingdom of David and and. And Jerusalem as the capital city is, is really just a picture of something greater. The promised land, we, we read in, in Hebrews 11 that Abraham was promised the land, but he knew that he was looking for a greater city whose builder and foundation is God. So the promised land itself is just a picture of the new heavens and the new earth. It's a down payment. It's a, it's a small parcel of land that represents the, the recreated, resurrected universe. At the end of the age. So you just, that's places, things. You, you look for so many, we already talked about uh, sacrifices or the tabernacle itself or the temple or, or, or the ark. Noah's ark is a thing that is a, a picture of the gospel, a picture of Jesus Christ. Uh, whoever was in the ark came through the judgment of God into a new earth. It's the same earth, but it's new. Same with us, if we're in Christ, we'll go through the judgment of God, we'll come out on the other side into a new heavens and a new earth. So that's typology. It's a really powerful way to see Jesus in the Old Testament. The third way that we looked for Jesus in the Old Testament was historical progression. And this one is so simple and and yet so helpful and so frequently overlooked and, and actually, I don't know if this has ever been your experience, but if it's not your experience, you probably know somebody who said, "I've tried to read the Old Testament, but it just gets too strange for me." And it, it, people are doing things in the Old Testament that I just—it doesn't compute. It doesn't—I can't relate to it. There's a lot of sin in the Old Testament, and and I just—I would rather just stay in the New Testament because the Old Testament is to, too grotesque, too. Sinful, etc., etc., the things that people did. Well, historical progression really, really helps with this. Historical progression is simply this a link in the chain of history from Adam to Jesus that helps us, or sorry, it's a link in the chain of history from Adam to Jesus without which salvation history would not have unfolded as it did. So Adam and Eve sinned in the garden. Right? That's the great problem. And we have to get to Jesus before God gives us the final, ultimate rescue from their fall into total depravity. Now, there's a lot of years there. Many thousands of years between Adam and Jesus. Historical progression just says that between Adam and Jesus, God has to lavish his grace on sinful people in order to bring Jesus into the world. We looked at the sin of Reuben, right? Reuben took his father's concubine. I mean, it's a problem that his father had a concubine in the first place. There was grace extended there to, to Jacob. But Reuben uh, slept with his father's concubine. It's a terrible sin. But without that sin, what we looked at was he would not have wanted to rescue Joseph from his brothers. Joseph's brothers wanted to kill him. But because Reuben was uh, in his father's bad books, and because Joseph was was his father's favorite son, Reuben said, no, we can't kill him, because Reuben wanted to restore Joseph to his father in order to be restored and to gain some favor with his father. So the sin of Reuben actually saved Joseph's life. Without Joseph, everybody dies of famine in uh, Canaan, because Joseph has to stay alive, he has to go to Egypt. Anyway, if you want more details, go and listen to the sermon. But you see these sins, these awful sins in the Old Testament, and God doesn't condone, uh, condone them, he doesn't accept them, he doesn't like them, but he lavishes his grace on sinful people, and he uses even the sin of people to further his plan of salvation, to bring us just one generation closer to Jesus. And there's not a single generation from Adam to Jesus, where there wasn't terrible sin, and yet God preserved humanity one generation at a time in order to bring the Savior into the world. And that ought to be really comforting to us. The fact that God can use us even on our worst day, that's not at all permission to go out and sin. But it is a comfort, isn't it? God will use Everyone and everything to bring about his purpose in the world. Fourthly, we looked at contrast. Contrast is simply this. some uh, Contrast is some matter of discontinuity between life under the old covenant and life under the new covenant. That's a, a second objection to the Old Testament, right? We just can't relate to it. It just doesn't seem like the same religion at all. I use religion in the best possible way. I know it's become... Sort of a derogatory word, but it shouldn't be. Uh, It just doesn't seem like the same system of faith and practice that we are in. And and the reality is, yes, life under the old covenant manifested itself in the day-to-day living of the people very differently than life under the new covenant. So whenever you find those contrasts between life under the old covenant and life under the new covenant, you know how you can reconcile the differences. It's not that God has changed. It's that the old covenant has been fulfilled and transformed by the incarnation, the birth of Jesus, the life of Jesus, the death of Jesus, the resurrection of Jesus, the ascension of Jesus, and the promised return of Jesus. That... that foundational, central moment in all of history changes things. Uh, but what we noticed, and we went through the whole book of Leviticus, very macro view, what we noticed is there's more similarities than might seem at first. It, at first you might say, well, Leviticus has nothing to do with the Christian life, but by the end of our time going through Leviticus, we say, wow, all of our Christian doctrine comes from the book of Leviticus. So these points of context, contrast between the old covenant life and the new covenant life or life under each covenant when you reconcile them through jesus christ all of a sudden by the end you say wow there's great continuity for all the discontinuity for all that's different there's much that's the same and so those points of contrast help us to understand jesus so we answer the questions why don't i bring a sheep to church It's a good question, right? Because we don't need the shadow. The the blood of sheep doesn't take away sin. It was a typology pointing to what really matters, which is the Lamb of God, Jesus himself, who took our sin into his very body, shed the blood of God on the cross, And then died and was buried and took our sin and buried it with him. So we don't bring a sheep, but we bring Jesus Christ and Christ crucified. So what seems like a great discontinuity, all of a sudden you see continuity between sacrifices in the old covenant and the once for all sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Uh, Why can I eat bacon? I think pork is a great Easter meal. Because they couldn't eat pork in the Old Covenant. It was an unclean animal. But now we can eat it. Isn't it just like, well, that uh, clean and unclean legislation has nothing to do with us. No, that's not it at all. It's that we have been sanctified as we've, been, we've gone from unclean to holy because the food laws were always just pointing t- to a greater reality, which is that total depraved people are unclean in their hearts. And the cross of Jesus sanctifies us. I'm using that word in a priestly way. That is, sanctification is just a word that means that's when God makes something holy. Or someone holy. So, though we were born in total depravity, totally cut off from God, not seeking God, evil in our very nature, by the cross of Christ, we've been made holy. So, so pork is sort of besides the point that was just teaching us about the categories the categories still exist but we have been taken from the category of unclean and we've been put in the category of holy therefore to those who are holy everything is holy and to those who are unclean everything is unclean the categories remain but how you get from one category to another has changed Thirdly, we might say, why don't we stone anyone anymore? I mean, these are just examples. We don't stone anyone in the new covenant. Love your enemies. Love, bless, and do not curse. Why don't we stone anyone anymore? Why not eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, life for a life? That's justice. Why don't we go for that? Well, because the justice of God fell on Jesus on the cross. It's amazing how much Jesus accomplished on the cross, We don't stone anyone anymore because Jesus was stoned for us by crucifixion. I know he wasn't stoned, but he he took the death penalty for all who would break the law. So we don't stone anyone, and we trust that vengeance belongs to the Lord, and everyone will be judged fairly at the end. But we don't need to uphold the judicial law of stoning anymore, for example, because Jesus died. So all of these points of contrast, really fascinating to give you a, a bigger view of the gospel. Um, just what it was that Jesus accomplished on the cross for us. Next we looked at theophany. What is a theophany? A theophany is a manifestation of God in the Old Testament. And what we said was that when you see God in the Old Testament, you, at, at the very least you see the triune God. Father, Son, and Spirit. And we know that Jesus is the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity. Therefore, Jesus, by virtue of his oneness with the Father and the Spirit, is the God of the Old Testament. Now, this will radically change the way you read the Old Testament. If you read the Old Testament, and every time God speaks, you you think of Jesus speaking. Because whether it was the Father, or the Spirit, or the Son, the three speak with one voice. They share one will, they're completely unified in every, every, everything. Their will is one. Their, their activity is united. Father, Son, and Spirit work together in creation. Work together in sustaining the universe. Work together in redemption. So where the Father is, there is the Son and the Spirit also. And where the Son is, there is the Father and the Spirit. And where the Spirit is, there is the Father and the Son. So at the very least, to recognize that it's not right to read the Old Testament this way. That God the Father is the God of the Old Testament. And then Jesus shows up in Matthew. It changes the way you read the Old Testament. Because you know this caricature of God, that God is is mean and, and, and severe and harsh... In the Old Testament, and he's, he's mild and meek and, and cuddly in the New Testament. It's just not biblical. God is always the same. Do you know where the most violence in the Bible occurs? Old Testament or New Testament? You're, you, you can, this is a leading question, so you know where I'm going. New Testament. There's no more violent passage of Scripture than the crucifixion of God in human form. That's violence. With a capital V. Uh, nothing in the Old Testament compares to that. But we've become, it's become sanitized, right? We, we just sort of, oh yeah, Jesus on the cross. Judges 19, which we went over, that's hard to read, but we can get through Good Friday pretty easily now. To our shame, God came down as one of us and we killed him. Or the return of Christ. Do you know that the book of Joshua, the conquest, which some Christians are so embarrassed about, which we shouldn't be embarrassed about, we're so, don't know what to do with the fact that God would, would command the killing of so many people. Do you know that that is just a typology of the return of Christ? It's a picture, it's a prophetic picture of what's going to happen when Jesus comes back to take back the world. Do you know who spoke about hell more than anyone else in the whole Bible? Jesus. So we have these caricatures of the Bible. And one way that we can sort of help ourselves to level out is to say, well, Jesus is the God of the Old Testament. With the Father and the Spirit. And and the angel of the Lord, when you see the angel of the Lord in the the Old Testament, that's the pre-incarnate Christ. You'll notice that the angel of the Lord shows up and starts speaking. And then all of a sudden people are worshipping the angel of the Lord as if he is God. Because he is God. Because it's the pre-incarnate Christ. The commander of the Lord's army in Joshua 5 is the pre-incarnate Christ. So Jesus in his pre-incarnate, that is before he became a man, shows up in the Old Testament. Uh, When when Jesus says, "Before uh, before Abraham was, I am. I've always been. And and right before that he said that Abraham saw my day and was glad. And there are places where you might say that, wow, Abraham had an opportunity to meet the pre-incarnate Christ. And what did they talk about? I don't know all of the details of that. But Abraham knew about the gospel. Because he saw the pre-incarnate Christ. So it's very exciting. You know also in Isaiah 6. Isaiah is caught up to heaven, and there's a, a God on the throne, high and lifted up. In, in John chapter 12, John tells us that that's the pre incarnate Christ, it's not the Father. Amazing. Theophanies Jesus is the God of the Old Testament. And what we learn in the New Testament is not that God had a son, but that God has a father. It's very exciting. Uh, next, we looked at promise fulfillment, and this one is kind of where we're used to, right? We're, we're more used to this one, that there are certain promises of the Old Testament that are fulfilled in Christ, and, and one way that I tried to stretch our understanding of this is when you come across a promise in the Old Testament, go back to the beginning of the Old Testament, and, and there are people and resources that can help you to do this. You don't have to read the whole Old Testament every time you come across a promise, uh, but the promises usually stretch all the way back to Genesis, and then are weaved through the Old Testament, and they, they have moments of prominence, and then they sort of continue to be threaded through, and then they appear again and greater. So these promises are sort of braided throughout the Old Testament, rather than just a one-time promise. God braids these promises through the Old Testament. So first of all, when you come across a promise, you want to look backward. You want to say, what are the what is the history? What are the roots of this promise? And then you, you take it forward and you want to see how might Jesus have fulfilled this in his first coming. And I think often we stop there. But then we want to keep going and we want to decide how might Jesus fulfill this in his second coming. And so many of the promises uh, are partially fulfilled in the first coming of Jesus. But find their ultimate consummation when Jesus returns we need to be a people that begins to picture the gospel and biblical theology not stopping at the ascension of Jesus and the activity of the church, but longing for, hoping for, factoring in the return of Jesus. Our own resurrection from the dead, our own glorification, uh, uh, the resurrection of the universe, eternal life with God, and factor that into these Old Testament promises and it really fills them out. We looked at the Davidic covenant. And we said, it's, the Davidic covenant is so much more than just that one of David's sons would reign as king forever. That's true. That's a, that's a great piece of the Davidic covenant. But we looked at, at what the Davidic covenant was all about. It was all about God building a house for David. And we looked at the five ways that, that God would build a house for David. Go back and listen to it if you weren't here. Lastly, We looked at illustration. Uh, Illustration is a matter of Christian doctrine that is described in the Old Testament rather than defined. God taught theology by telling stories, mostly, in the Old Testament. And that's really interesting to me. And, And there's... A very helpful uh, didactic, or what would I? Didactic. There's a helpful way where you can learn about theology, or you can understand the way that you might learn about theology, by the way in which God taught theology in the Old Testament. God decided that He was going to tell stories. The law, for example, uh, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Yeah, there are some moments in there where He just gives you the law, but most of the law is narrative. It's a story. So how is that the law? Well, God is describing for us the law. He's not just defining it. Now, this is what I love about this, about the way that God did this. I am convinced that if we would just read the Bible like a book, it's funny that that's almost controversial to say that, if we would just read the Bible like a book. Well, it is a book. If we would just use the skills that we have to read the Bible, like we would read any other book. And I know it's not any other book. It's the book. But if we would use the skills that we use for other books. And we would use those skills to read the Bible. And if we would just have fun reading the Bible. If we would, could derive joy and pleasure. And not worry about how does this relate to my life right now. And you're like Israel's unfaithfulness in Judges 2.11. I don't know what that has to do with me. Like if we would just take the pressure off. If we would just read it and and enjoy it and just get lost in it and and forget about ourselves for a moment. If we would just stop thinking about how does this apply to me and what what do I do with this and all of that. If we would just enjoy it for what it is as a story. The theology will take care of itself. It's almost too simple. How do you learn theology? Well, just enjoy reading the, the story of the Bible. And the Holy Spirit will take those stories and he will teach you theology. It's probably the way that I've learned more theology than anything else. I I have systematic theology books and I read them. But they're only good in so far as they help me to understand this. So I just want to encourage you. Illustration is that. It's just motivating you to read the Bible. Read the stories. Don't worry about yourself. Don't worry about... Uh, modern day application, read, read, read. And then you'll find, this. I promise you this. I don't like to make a lot of promises, but I do promise you this. If you just read the Bible and all these stories that don't seem to have anything to do with you, in two weeks or in two months or in two years or in 20 years, something will happen to you or somebody will come to you with a problem. And you'll be like, oh, Othniel. Othniel I, I think I can apply Othniel's life to this situation so we're so backwards we're looking, we're looking for the Bible for like what, what can I apply to my life in 2017 well no maybe what you're reading today is going to apply to your life in 2025 but if you never read it in 2017 you're not going to be able to apply it to your life in 2025 get lost in the Bible enjoy the stories for the stories Look for Jesus. We looked at um, Judges 19, a terrible chapter. Just awful, awful sin. But you see, what Judges 19 helps us to do in its context is understand what total depravity is. How bad are we really without God? How lost is humanity without the gospel? Well, we could talk about it intellectually or we could say, well we're a lot like judges 19 without god praise be to god that we're not totally depraved anymore because we put our faith in jesus christ and he's cut the total depravity out of us and he's given us a heart of flesh he's written the law in our hearts he's circumcised our hearts choose whichever image you like there but that's praise god that we're not like that anymore in our nature yeah we still struggle with sin but we're not totally depraved because of jesus So seeing Jesus in the Old Testament, there's so many ways. There's type scenes and typologies, historical progression, contrast, theophanies, promise fulfillment, and illustration just to get started. But might I encourage you to take these seven, start reading the Bible, and just say, you know, what, which one of these seven might I apply to this chapter of the Old Testament? Just practice, and then it will become second nature to you. The gospel of Jesus Christ is written in the Old Testament. Everything we need to know about the gospel is in Genesis through Malachi. I I mean, the New Testament is helpful. But everything that we need to know about the gospel was written on the day that Jesus was raised from the dead. And he said, everything written about me... In the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled, and it was. Now wait for the Holy Spirit, and I go out and be my witnesses. Let us have a big view of the gospel. Look for all of its nuances, all of its corridors, all of its height, all of its depth, all of its width. Don't be satisfied with a small gospel that says, well, the gospel gets you out of hell, and it does, praise be to God. But much more than that, Look for the gospel in all of its complexity. Have fun reading the Bible. And the theology will take care of itself. And you will come to know Jesus like you've never known him before. And lastly, let let me encourage you. We will never know Jesus completely. There's always more to learn about who he is. So we're never done. Keep reading to the glory of God. Let's pray. Oh God, I thank you. I thank you for your kindness toward me and toward us. I pray that you would help us to be a people of the book that love your scriptures, who invest our lives in your word. And we trust you to lead us by your spirit, to teach us, to change us, to wash us, to transform us. We thank you that you have already done that for all of us who have called on the name of Jesus Christ, from a pure heart we thank you that you're the one that has given us the faith and the grace to be called children of God that is what we are children of God and what we will be the great glory yet to be revealed has not yet been revealed but we know we will be like Jesus because we will see him as he is in the meantime Lord Show us your glory through every page of Scripture. In your name we pray. Amen.